Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. For today's episode, we are travelling all the way around the globe to Australia to meet with Nick May. Nick is the secretary of the RSE Association of Australia and New Zealand. He worked in the private sector for a long period before deciding to join the community of RSEs. Hello, Nick, and welcome to the show. Nick, I think you have quite an interesting career. Uh, You started in astrophysics, but went into the private sector quite some time. Could you tell us more about it? Originally, I actually didn't start in research. I did a bachelor degree in in astrophysics back in the late 80s. Then I was really interested to carry on in astrophysics, but um, given the limited number of professional roles there are in astrophysics, I ended up finding a role in um, information technology. Yeah, and I've been working in that sector since then in different domains as well. It's been quite good. I've worked in the finance domain, retail manufacturing, distribution, Mm -hmm. a lot of telecoms and banking. They they were lucky enough I got to go to Hong Kong for a while to work in the telecoms industry and in different size of companies as well, from multinationals down to small little software vendors. So it's been quite varied. Mm -hmm. So that's where most of my career has been, yeah. Um, So what made you go back to research and research software engineering? There was some contraction in the banking industry around the year 2000. And so but I had the opportunity to go back to university to to learn what I should have been doing for the previous almost 20 years in software engineering because my bachelor's degree wasn't in computer science. I didn't know a lot of the theory about what I should have been doing as a software engineer so it was useful to learn and I did a master's in information technology. So what is it that you actually wanted to learn or you think that you should have learned while you were still working in the private sector and that you picked up in the course? It's a lot of the theory, um, a lot of the useful things and best practice. That's what the learning, the doing the masters actually gave me. I had experience in a fair amount of languages and certain things. For instance, testing, I'd done some testing, but I'd never understood the theory of testing and why it was so important. Learning that, it was getting that global view of software engineering, you know, the big picture view. Most of my time I've spent in the development part and I then learned about the different phases of the software development lifecycle. And the one that really opened my eyes was the software architecture. Well, that leads me on to the next question because we focus so much on technical details in software engineering, but I think there's also another component like strategy and design, architecture design, which is what, of course, software architects do in many companies. Do you think we need research software architects as well as research software engineers? That's a very interesting question. And as usual, it's in some cases, yes. And in some cases, I don't think that they're, they're required. With any of the parts of the software development lifecycle, I mean, software architecture is one of these more of an initial design. It's a high level design. Mm. It's really important in some cases and in others, not really. But I think with the move that's coming to make software research software more sustainable, those professional practices like 
architectural design, thinking about the long-term deployment of software and, and support for software, yes, then it's required. But there are times in the research software engineering domain that you don't need to think about those things. You do what's expedient <clears throat> at the time. So I think there may not have been enough of it going so far. And there will be it's a sign of maturity, I think, as the software and research software engineering community matures, that it will become more ingrained into what we do. Well, best practices and guidelines for software engineering is something that the research software engineers, of course, are promoting in various different associations. And very often that means changing the way people work and changing the way they develop software. And that's quite a formidable task because change management is always quite difficult. I mean, how would you approach this and how did you approach this in your role in research software engineering, looking back, taking advantage of the experience you gathered in the private sector? When I did the master's course in IT, it was I was learning why, when learning the theory, I was learning why I should have been using these best practices. The theory behind, you know, the rationale behind why they were actually advantageous to my role. There was one great one. Um, I was at an unconference and it was around testing. I said in some session that, you know, I'm doing unit testing. I'm trying to learn these frameworks. But my company, which was a small software vendor, they just don't want to include testing at all. You know, it's just a waste of time. And the, the people in the room were like horrified. And someone said, yeah, you should either change your company or change your company. Because as you, in this area, they, it was so essential to them, they understood the rationale of why these things mm. are, are important. And that's the same, is that when it's required, when best practices are there for a reason, and that reason applies to the research software domain, then they should then be shared and the rationale with them. But overall, the changing people's processes and methodologies and the way they work, it's, it's an adoption problem. It's understanding who needs to adopt what practices and when it's useful for them, and then how to help them uh, adopt those, whether you use education or whether you use enforcement or incentives. Yeah, that's well understood, the adoption process. Still the issue of understanding what the research software domain is like, why it's different to the other domains. Now, I think there's quite a good point that you make that the research software engineering area is quite a bit different from what we encounter in the IT sector. And in fact, I think it's quite a broad church anyway. If I take my role, for instance, I'm embedded in a central RSE group where we work with different researchers from different faculties and different research groups. But then we have the model where researchers are actually, or research software engineers are embedded within a research team. So how does this work in Australia and New Zealand mainly? Is it uh, like what we have in the UK in some universities, not in all, that where we have central RSE teams being made available as a almost consultancy service to different faculties and uh, university parts? Or is it more like they're embedded in the actual research team? It's similar here, but I think different different percentages. I mean, I've been lucky to go to the UK uh, RSE conference for two years, and I see the growth in those research software engineering groups. That has not really happened here yet. Um, I think it will. Uh, we have a large number of non-professional practitioners. So <laughs> most of the RSEs, I would say, in Australia are researchers who are building software or who have mm -hmm. started on a research project. So it would be the embedded mode and they, the majority of them would, would come from 
I'd call them research practitioners who are building software as well. But they're doing that because of that, they're doing more prototyping and less of the sustainable model of that you would expect with a professional software engineer working in the research domain. Part of it is because of the diversity of functionality that is required building a piece of software for astrophysics compared to bioinformatics. But the other growth is the growth of data science practitioners. So data scientists being involved uh, or being a central data science team being made available to help researchers. There's some uh, collaboration going on around what's called the third space. So the discussion in Australia is about this third space where between academic and professional, where people can come from either side and they get involved and it blurs the lines. So I think there's a lot of confusion at the moment in Australia about where people are and there's not enough of those RSE groups being set up when we have a better picture about the value and the executives get the understand the rationale for a, a centralized research software engineering group we'll see more of them but at the moment it's it's overwhelmingly be the the, the researchers building their own software what i'm quite fascinated in is you're mentioning the third space and that kind of collaboration between industry and the research sector because i feel that this could be very beneficial how do you see that feeding into what we do in uh, research software engineering in the long term and how do you see the research association of australia and new zealand helping with that that's that's very interesting i mean i see this phenomenon of non-professional practitioners building their own software is is pretty unique to research domain Mm. that's what makes it distinct than other industries every industry you'd have a, a, a software team to build software for the company or or for the group you wouldn't have an accountant from the accounting department building some writing their own software for, <laughs> and then asking the IT department to put it into production or whatever that's different and and this is where it's blurred the line with data science so the role that the RSC association I think the principal role because of that overwhelming number of non-professional practitioners it's about bringing best practice and professional practices mm-hmm. and sharing that with the the researchers so that those that want to get into build their own software or help help with software project so it's it's a for me it's an education sort of role yeah and help training and awareness that's what i think the researchers and to give an outlet for those researchers that are doing software engineering to understand they are part of a bigger community You mentioned the RSE's Association for Australia and New Zealand. We talked a little bit about it. So what's the story and what's the history of this association and what's your role in there? My role is as secretary Mm -hmm. um, of the steering committee. This is coming up to our first year of a formal elected steering committee. Mm -hmm. So it actually kicked off. We have an annual conference in Australia called eResearch Australasia. That's been going 14 15 years because we have this concept of e-research still under debate what it is but uh, (laughs) there was a workshop uh, four years ago where some of the UK RSE society came over I Mm -hmm. can't remember whether it's one or two to present and 
kicked off the community, basically. That was four years ago. And then we started an interim informal steering committee. And over the years, we've been getting more formal. And we had our first election about this time last year. So this is the first year of the formal committee. And we're now actually starting to get organized. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where we are. We have, we have a slowly growing uh, list of members increasing all the time uh, you know it's about this year has been about getting a website up and running um, starting to talk about doing online events so it's been a process of formalization and, and engagement all the time I think you mentioned education and promoting best practices before do you see that as the main task of the association since the majority of um, software engineers and research are self-taught, basically. What, what do you think are the biggest challenges that you're going to face? What do you think lies ahead? Coming from a professional background, that's been my journey. Before I did the master's, I was effectively self-taught the same way. So now I've had the more formal education in, in it. How do we share that with the community and bring their level of professionalization and awareness of software engineering up? But also that other factor, factor about building a community mm. because people are distributed and they can often be isolated, the only person doing that. It's about sharing information, but also allowing them to you know, share their experiences and feel like they can be part of that community. In terms of professional development, so we talked about researchers being embedded in teams and sort of moving into software development. There are some universities across the globe where there's a recognized role as research software engineers and, in fact, a career path. So, so how do you think that the Research Software Association in Australia and New Zealand can help with that? Do you see there's a need for uh, developing a specific role, a dedicated role of research software engineers and research? Or do you think that it's more efficient to actually keep it on the side of let's keep it with research and just help them develop better software? That is a debate that is being had at a much broader level within uh, Australia, that idea of the third space, I mean, data mm. scientists, RSEs, data librarians, this sort of thing. So there is across the organisations, there is a coming together at the moment in different organisations at a national level on that discussion. Mm -hmm. And people people recognise because the academic or the universities in Australia, where you're boxed for mm -hmm. your career depends on which side of the academic professional divide you are, which set of grades that you actually slip into. And there, once you move from the academic to professional, you don't move back again. There is no mobility. So that idea of how do we get that is still a very much an open question. It's an ongoing process, but it is being direct, uh, addressed. I happen to be involved in some of those discussions as well in our local, in a Victorian state organisation, we're looking into that. How do we categorise? What are the services? You know, what is a mm. research software engineering service look like? What are the capabilities that are required to deliver that? What are the skills that, that need to be supported by? It's part of a bigger problem, the RSEs. And I, I don't know if the role RSE will be what comes out of this. It may be someone uh, that there's a broad RSE role, but the skills and mm -hmm. capabilities that as part of your position description will vary quite a bit. So my, I'm an example in that my job title is formally software developer brackets research data. <laughs> 
they it has no relationship to what i actually do i well a very vague relationship and right that is that is quite common that there's a whole variability we within the broader e-research community that rses are uh, struggling with this just like other professions or other mm. skill sets Maybe that flexibility is also a strength. There has, of course, been a lot of disruption recently with the coronavirus and COVID-19 outbreak. So how do you see that changing the role of RSE in future? Does it have an impact at all, do you think? I, I think the outcome of this will be positive because we're a spread out workforce or, or community. What this has done is we're having to do much more collaboration, training, discussion, mm. community things online. Because you could be spread apart, because everything and the, the infrastructure is all being set up and the things like RSE stories and various, e, various online events, the source, mm -hmm. because they're being set up, they will be perfect to bring together a distributed community ongoing. So I think the outcome is actually beneficial for the RSC community. Well, that's been a fascinating conversation. Um, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, uh, Nick. And there are usually two questions that I ask. The first, which is, if you look ahead into the future, what do you think a successful career as a research software engineer looks like to you? I think it will be recognized, the value of, of it and the value of software engineering to the research domain. So you may see actual courses at university in software engineering for research, either as part of a wider degree or as part of being part of research methods that's all mm. so i think the the understanding will be more formal and recognized and that will follow on from the role the necessity of training the necessity of recognizing and rewarding good practice in research software people will be able to progress in the future from start as a research software developer go to soft research software engineer research software architect chancellor after that <laughs> <laughs> and provost if necessary provost yeah. chancellor yeah <laughs> so uh, finally um what is it you do outside work what do you like to do i'm a gamer as well virtual reality gaming flight simulators that sort of thing star simulators and between that baking i actually started baking my sourdough two years ago <laughs> so fortunately <laughs> it's mature my starter is mature enough now that we don't have to leave the house to go and buy bread <laughs> just the flour are you kidding me because i started my sourdough three years ago and i'm baking my yeah. own bread as well <laughs> i don't think we've bought a loaf of bread in this house for like uh, over a year and a half And the and the latest one I've just started doing is because I'm originally from the UK and uh, my favourite food is proper Cornish pasties. Ooh. My family, uh, my mother was from Cornwall, so we used to go holidaying there, and and I had the real stuff. So I've been trying to recreate that now. So I make my own Cornish pasties as well. Yeah, I think we need to have a baking competition at some stage. <laughs> there is. I interviewed someone else recently who had actually also some baking experience. He specializes on pastry and sweets. We've got sourdough uh, and pastry and Cornish pastry covered now, so which is excellent. We can do a whole meal. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for that conversation, and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I look forward to when I can finally come back to UK to the to the in-person conference. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. 
If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.